The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is my good friend, George Schroeder, the National College Football Writer from USA Today. We'll talk about the unintended consequences of the new redshirt rule and how much of a problem it really is. And we'll preview week six of the season with high-stakes games between Texas and Oklahoma, where George will be. Plus, Notre Dame at Virginia Tech and LSU at Florida. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can now find us on Podcast One. We are happy to be working with those fine folks, and the podcast has taken off since we have been on that platform. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe on either platform, and if so inclined, give us a good review. That helps college football fans find us and us find more college football fans and as usual you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of our coverage and away we go joining me this week is my good friend george schroeder from usa today we have not come across each other yet this season in a press box but i'm sure that will be that will be coming at some point it won't be this weekend because i don't think i'm going anywhere and if i end up anywhere it might be in Blacksburg. I'm assuming you're going to be at the Red River rivalry. Yeah, it's just the easiest uh, easiest thing. Sometimes the the path of least resistance makes sense, and that when you can do Texas, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Texas with some national stakes, it's always something that I love to do. So. Right, and you can sleep in your own bed by the end of the night if you Probably. choose. If you yeah. choose, right, <laughs> like you can Absolutely. still get home Te- in time. It, it, you know, that depends on what the traffic is like. Uh, <laughs> Rolling back northward across the Red River, but absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say you could be home in time for dinner, but you'd have to eat pretty late. And I know you don't write that fast. so Or not work, yeah, one or the other. George writes very well, but even George will admit sometimes his thought process, his crafting needs a little time. Uh, which is not a good sign, given how the crafting comes out. No, but, uh, no, that's not true. See, that's I was going to say, but you know, in the end, the product is brilliant. It just <laughs> some, sometimes it takes a little while to get there. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, thank you. I think um, we'll go with that. I guess take all the compliments you can, George. Okay, so that's right. Eventually, we will get to the Red River rivalry. Red River rivalry. The uh, the uh, you know Red River showdown. Red River shootout. Red River Shootout, the one, that, and they went away from that because it's, you know, I guess it's politically incorrect. Yeah. And it's been a long time, but that's what it is. Yeah. The Red River Shootout. I like to still call it that, too. It's also easier to say. We'll talk about Virginia Tech, Notre Dame, and some other big games. But I want to start, you know, last week, uh, the podcast, this podcast went a little different direction. I talked with Joe Klatt about the AP poll and some things along those lines. But I missed the little news, and the one bit of news that I wanted to get to is the red shirt rule and how the unintended consequences of players now sort of bailing out after four or five games. And, you know, it caused a little bit of a of a stir, and it was a little sort of shocking to the system to see a guy like Jalen McCleskey at Oklahoma State, a, you know, a four-year player, you know, a senior who's been a really good player for a while to sort of say, I'm out of here and I'm going to go grad transfer last year. And then, of course, we had the big news with Kelly Bryant. Um, 
So what I would ask you is not necessarily talk about anything those players specifically, but do you think something needs to be quote unquote done about the unintended consequences of this rule? Do we have to go back in and rejigger this thing because oh my gosh, there's going to be all these players leaving after five, four or five weeks? No, we we shouldn't do that at all. I mean, as big a benefit as it is to the uh, to the college football coaches and to the players to be able to redshirt and to be able to get, but yet get some games under their belt, whether you're freshman or whatever year you are. It to me, this is, and maybe this will become a wave next year as people figure it out. But I don't think so. Even if it is a wave, though, of of people deciding to shut it down after four games and transfer. Um, to me, the idea that you're going to go back in and do something that sort of restricts transferring is uh, optically something the NCAA is not ready to do at this point. I mean, you know, coming up later this month, October 15th, the transfer rule changes fairly dramatically in that you don't have to get permission to contact. That's the NCAA ease for um, schools can't restrict you from where you want to go. You know, Bill Snyder can't say, I have 127 schools or something <laughs> that you can't go to. And I'm kidding, but only, you know, he had something like a list of 40 something with a guy a few years back and you can just go anywhere you want. The idea that you would then do something that sort of optically restricts it. Well, it does restrict transfers is bad optics. And I just don't think they'll do that. I also have a problem with the idea and we're hearing it from a lot of coaches of unintended consequences, unintended consequences. I talked to Todd Berry, the uh, AFCA, American Football Coaches Association's executive director, and I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but you know, they've been pushing for some form of this rule for years and years and years. And he said this kind of thing was talked about as a potential consequence if you ever got the rule passed. So I don't know that that means that every coach had thought through it, but so what? Mm -hmm. I don't care. And, and the other thing I keep thinking is this. Let's say Trevor Lawrence had beaten out Kelly Bryant in August. None of us would have been surprised if Kelly Bryant transferred, and none of us would have been particularly upset about it either. Yeah. It's, so I get it. it. We it's sort just of, weird. You know, there's a yeah, faction that says you're quitting on your team or this, that, and the other. I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, it's it's different. So Again, it, it causes a little bit of a shock to the system because we've never seen this before. And, you know, there's also something that could be said of these are players who are not necessarily playing. So they're all backups, right? I mean, most of them are leaving because well, they're not Jaylen getting. Jalen McCleskey's not, the Oklahoma State receiver. That was sort of an odd one. It was like, okay, you're not getting enough footballs thrown your way. But mm -hmm. I think he was the second leading receiver at that point. And they obviously were breaking in a new quarterback. But – Yes. Sorry, I interrupt you. And answer your question, you're, we're talking about backups here. So, right. So even And even in McCleskey's case, if your complaint is, I'm not getting a lot of passes, it sort of means that your role on the team is not that big. I mean, to a certain degree, you can say he was right. starting, but clearly there was at least uh, players on this. And listen, last week, I, I mean, after he left... Uh, one of the guys who stepped into his role ended up, which is very Oklahoma State, right? Oklahoma State is one of these programs that always has another guy. <laughs> they always seem to have the right. next guy. And you may not know who that guy is, but he's probably pretty good. So they, you know, they had a player who stepped up and caught like eight balls and, and uh, you know, for over 100 yards. My point being that these players are not so critical to these teams that they're going to collapse. They're players that are probably in some ways have been at least a little bit marginalized. The only issue becomes depth 
which is obviously a problem. Listen, I mean, Clemson sort of found that out this weekend when all of a sudden it was left with the third string quarterback. And now Hunter Renfro is the number three quarterback on the team. So that's not ideal. I also think that it falls into the bucket of things that we see a lot in college sports, which is we overreact to a small number of players doing something that is unusual and then think, do we need to make a rule or like, how is this going to affect the game? It strikes me a little bit as like sitting out of bowl games. I think we're going to continually see more of that, but I don't know if it'll ever get to the point of being an epidemic, you know, like, like it's sort of being portrayed as. Listen, Ralph, I think you're right about that. And by the way, I want to go back real quick to unintended consequences. We were talking about just this sort of situation all summer long with the Alabama quarterback situation, with Tua winning the job, which, of course, he did, and with Jalen Hurts playing in four games, which, of course, he did. And then there was this thought, well, maybe he'll shut it down at that point and become sort of this emergency break the glass if there's an emergency quarterback, but then transfer after you know after the season's over and you know have two seasons of eligibility left we were already contemplating that what we didn't contemplate was that people would leave the team and of course Jalen you know in kind of an interesting upset for the conventional wisdom played in his fifth game last last week and appears to be very content with his current role you know so that's unusual but we'd already been talking about this so the idea that no one had contemplated in the coaching ranks had contemplated yeah, somebody's not going to be a break-the-glass guy. They're just going to quit the team and transfer. And quit is a, not a good way to put it. But it's hard for me to believe that. I, I do think this. I understand coaches who would tell you, well, this sort of um, could be a potential problem for me in recruiting because of the way we build our roster, you know, with the 85 scholarships and the 25 you can sign in any one year. And I get all that, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for those guys, quite no, frankly. No. it's part Roster management is part of your deal, and this will be one more thing that you have to figure out how to deal with. And But the benefits to being able to play those freshmen, especially the young players, four games and you know keep them enthused, see if they can help you, all sorts of things like that, the benefits of team morale I think is probably pretty good across the country too. Yeah, and I think that even for – see, cause I don't think – Coaches and coaches haven't. You haven't seen sort of this uprising from coaches complaining a lot about this. Even Gun, I mean, Gundy didn't handle it particularly well from the media side of things, not letting <laughs> Blair, but that was a different story. But he didn't come out and trash McCleskey. And Dabo's been very Dabo when it comes to Kelly Bryant. You know, I'm sure at some point maybe a coach will lose a player and sort of grumble about that player. But I also think that it's because they understand that the benefits outweigh any negatives that are brought about by this. They're access to all these players on their roster that they didn't have before. So losing one or two, and I think you're right when you say this is, it's new, so it's sort of learned behavior, and we will probably see more of it because I'm sure that, listen, I am positive there are kids on rosters who did not know that they could do this until a couple of weeks ago who may be looking at their situation right now, like may have read the story on McCleskey or on Bryant, probably Bryant because he was in the news a lot, and went, oh, man, like we can do this now? Not because anybody's dumb or like because kids aren't paying that close of attention to this. So I'm sure that there are some of them who are like, wow, that's something I am guess we're going to have to consider at some point. Or maybe like they'll just store it away in the back of their minds and if things don't happen. So you'll definitely see more of it. But the overall well, benefits were, are, are still greatly outweigh whatever whatever drawbacks there are. 
Let me suggest one reason we might not see a ton more of it, and that is this. As, as the years go on, we're going to find more and more players who have been redshirted. You know, there was a trend away from redshirting over the last 15 or 20 years because if a freshman could help you, you'd end up burning his redshirt by playing him some. And, and so you had a bunch of guys who were upperclassmen who had a redshirt year still available to them. Now I think you're going to find a lot of – and coaches will strategize in different ways on how to do it. But, you you know, nothing says a guy has to play in the first four games in redshirt. You could theoretically structure your freshman playing time in some ways over the course of an entire season and play some of these guys in these four games and some of these four games and some of these four games. I think we're going to see more freshmen get redshirted. And my point on that is – if that's the case, then the upperclassman doesn't have a redshirt year available to him to do this, too. So I think that's – it's hard to know how this is going to shake out, but I think that will end up limiting the sheer numbers of upperclassmen and people who just decide to transfer. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, Gary Patterson, I remember talking to about – TCU's coach – about the way he was going to use the, the rule this year. And he sort of mentioned what you just mentioned, which was he's got a pretty good team. He's got a fair amount of like experience, you know, ones and twos. He had thought, and what he said was, I'm going to try to do sort of what you said is, is space this out, use freshmen and, and players on special teams, but be able to have a system where I've got a group for the first four games, a group for the second four games, right. and a group for the last four games. And if, and if some of these guys emerge and really need to be played more, then they could do that. But he hinted at using it that way. While other guys, like a Matt Rule at Baylor, who's got a really growing team, he wanted to see who was going to be able to play. And and I think his idea was, I'm going to play a lot of these guys the first four games right, and then figure right. out from there because I really need to figure – I need to find some players when I get into Big 12 uh, territory. The interesting thing also, though – I sort of have to play this out in my head. You're right that you know guys are taking red shirts, but I do wonder if you're also combining this rule with the fact that so many kids come in early and are basically done, graduated by the time they hit year three, if you are possibly creating a bunch more graduate transfers with two years of eligibility left. So I've already taken yeah. my red shirt year. I've played two years now I'm done I'm graduated but I still have two years left and that's interesting because grad transfers with two years of eligibility are a little more desirable in a lot of cases it also could affect because they're trying to tinker with the grad transfer rule and one of the ways they want to tinker with it is saying hey if you sign that kid you're on the hook for that scholarship for two years because there are very few grad programs that are one year though those are going to start popping up, I'm sure. Uh, and they have those. For, for pre- football factories. Yeah, they have this precise. They have you know majors like this and grad programs like that to help out the football players to a certain degree. But I am interested because if you have a bunch more grad transfers with two years eligible, now all of a sudden that little trick you were going to play, which is to say, oh, you got to use that scholarship for two years. Well, now you have players who you can have for two years. Right. So yet another yeah, no, unintended consequence. the whole thing is it, there are so many sort of potential tentacles that could grow off of this, and, and I don't think we really figured all of them out at this point. No, and like everything with the NCAA, right? I mean, anything with college sports, there's a lot of push and pull and yin and yang, and you never quite know exactly where any rule is headed until it's there, and then all these unintended consequences just sort of pop up. All right, so we are going to take a little break here, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about football. 
You are listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo. I'm with George Schroeder from USA Today. Back after this. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo. Joined this week by George Schroeder from USA Today, my good friend. Uh, so let's talk some ball. And before I get into specific games, we've got a month in the books here. And there's already a little bit of a sense of, man, we kind of know who the playoff teams are going to be. <laughs> Boy, there's like four or five really good teams, and everybody else just sort of seems okay. Now, I think that maybe is an over a little bit of an overreaction. But if I was to throw this at you, what could spice up October here to make things a little more interesting so we're not just sort of waiting around for Alabama and Georgia to play, for Ohio State to get some big games, and Clemson to finally lose? Like It just seems like we're sort of waiting for four or five teams to lose rather than moving, having teams sort of force the issue. What could happen in October where teams possibly forcing the issue? I don't know if this is this really fits, but I think a lot of us look at LSU's number five ranking or and, and think to ourselves, not really sure that's real. They have a great resume, but but what I'm talking about is in terms of when you watch the team with the eyeball test, you go, okay, they're not like the others. But uh, they're at Florida this week, which is yet another test for them. And then they get Georgia at home. And if they get Georgia at home and some and somehow beat Georgia, even if they don't win this week um, at Florida, they could they could shock the system, sort of the conventional wisdom of the playoff, which is that Georgia may or may not get to the playoff, but they're going to be right in it to the very end uh, and play and play. You know, potentially, you know, we all think it's Alabama, Georgia in the SEC championship game. We all go, hey, could they both get in? Mm-hmm. I think LSU could could toss a shock in the system. Now, maybe that's not a, a good answer since they're ranked so high right now but when i look at them i don't i don't see a playoff caliber team at this point um i I just see a team that is you know vastly exceeding expectations but they can prove me wrong again i I think that's a team that could spice up the playoff Uh, i also know it's fashionable to to write off the pac-12 at this point and that makes a lot of sense and i don't have a problem with it i'm kind of i'm kind of there too but when we don't write them off we talk about washington running the table and I think they, you know, they've looked pretty good offensively. They're sort of still a work in progress, but their defense is really good. Um, but I was really impressed a week ago with Oregon, even when they lost to Stanford, just with like, oh, the capabilities of what they seem to have. And then, of course, they had a meltdown. But they came back and they um, really played very well against a pretty good Cal team on the road. And. In a couple of weeks here, they get Washington and Eugene. Last time they had Washington and Eugene, Chris Peterson put up 70 on them mm-hmm. to end that long, husky losing streak to the Ducks. I think it's worth thinking that in mid-October, Oregon could could change things in a playoff conversation. I'm not saying Oregon could become the Pac-12's playoff hope, but, but they might become the Pac-12's playoff hope, none of which is good news for the Pac-12. But there's two. Um, I'm sure you've got some some thoughts, too. Well, LSU is a good one, and again, part of it is because LSU actually has a pretty lively, with the next two weeks, a pretty lively October schedule, and you're right. I mean, you could absolutely see a scenario where all of a sudden, if LSU were to hand Georgia a loss, now all of a sudden the idea of two teams from the SEC becomes a little wonky. So I spent a good amount of time driving this past weekend because I went to Ohio State, Ohio State, Penn State. 
And because it, it, if people don't know, I live in New York, so that's a drive. There's no reason to, to fly that because you're not even anywhere near State College if you're flying to Harrisburg. Or you, you're, you're near, but you're not that close. So that's Didn't a drive. Didn't you feel like you needed to take an Uber just because that's all you ever do, the Uber or the subway? No, well, not, I, I like to – no, I like to drive. I like, I like the long drives every once in a while. <laughs> but you're right. That's one of the reasons why I like a long drive because I right. don't drive much. And also when you drive in New York, you're sitting in traffic. And it's it's not pleasurable at all, but that that drive to State College, eh, not too bad. But I'm in a rental car with satellite radio, so I'm bouncing around to you know the places in between music and sports talk. And my favorite thing, I listened to either on ESPNU radio or maybe it was Feinbaum, was an SEC fan presenting the scenario that. Three SEC teams could make the playoff if Georgia, LSU, and Alabama sort of round-robin beat each other, so they're mm-hmm. all left with one loss, and all the games are really close. So that was my favorite thing, because, of course, an SEC fan is, is trying to plot out a way to get not just two, but three SEC teams in the playoff. But, of course, because, of course, Paul, this is clearly the best league, and it's clearly the best teams, and on and on and on. Yeah, no, but that's... that's uh, let, let me just say this. I know that we've got Georgia and Alabama ranked very highly and, and LSU currently as well. I still think it's unlikely that we're going to see year after year of two teams from one league getting in. I think it's far less likely than it is likely. I, I agree with you a thousand percent, and I think it's unlikely this year, I, especially in a scenario when the teams are playing each other. I think it became a little more pal- palatable last year for the committee because Alabama and Georgia had not played each other. You know, right. You, uh, you can pit them against, you can pick the winner, essentially. Yes. Now, I'll say this. If it's two 12-0 teams and Georgia beats Alabama, that will be a real test to the system mm-hmm. because Alabama, and, and I'm not saying this is wrong, gets the benefit of the doubt yeah. um, because Alabama. You're also not see, been, saying it's right, though. No, but, I, but <laughs> it just is right. I mean, some point at some point, some of this has to be about what you accomplished, right? Right. And so, but you're right. It, it, I, especially if Alabama beats Georgia, and Georgia is twelve and one now, and Alabama's thirteen and zero, or or twelve and one. Maybe they took a loss somewhere along the way. Uh, but if Alabama beats Georgia, it's hard for me to see. Now, again, everything depends on who else is out there from those other leagues. And by the way, we haven't mentioned Notre Dame, but what are the records and resumes of those other contenders? But assuming you have conference champions with one or fewer losses, and that's the thing that was not there last year when Alabama got in, the Mm -hmm. the conference champions they were up against had two losses. Uh, Assuming there's one loss champs, I don't don't see a non-champ getting in over them, regardless of what they've been ranked throughout the season, even in the committee's rankings when they start them. Yeah, and I think the Oregon pick you made is interesting as well. For the exact reason that you said, though I'll spin it a little differently, I think Oregon has a chance to really ruin the Pac-12's playoff hopes. Yeah, I mean, which is sort of what you said, but I would just put it like in that situation. Listen, I know Oregon got screwed by Texas A&M by by not having a game, so it (laughs) so it killed their non-conference schedule, and. Oregon blew it last week. So Oregon is really structured to do nothing but harm to watch. You, you, to, to the you don't get credit for intent in a non-conference schedule as much as it would be nice because A&M did, uh, did hurt their non-conference schedule. Yeah. What you get credit for is who you actually played and how good they were. And that schedule was worthy of, uh, 
oh, certain broadcast teams putting cupcakes <laughs> on sidelines. Uh, that's what it was worthy of. So, you know, if they're a one-loss Pac-12 champion, they're not going to have the resume of other one-loss Pac-12 champions as far as that goes. And I'm not suggesting they could run the table as far as that goes anyway. Yeah. What, what Oregon needs to do is, is be really, really good and lose to Washington. Like, like basically, you know, play a good game against Washington, lose, Washington runs the table. That's the best-case scenario for the Pac-12 and for Washington, that Oregon and Stanford both now play really well for the rest of the season, but Washington beats them. Oregon does not agree with that scenario in any way, shape, or form. Definitely not. <laughs> Starting with which team you are then elevating to represent the Pac-12. <laughs> It's truly worst-case scenario for Oregon and any Ducks fan, no doubt. Right, because we're not just handing over the Pac-12 to somebody else, but you're handing it over to Washington. Right. So we mentioned LSU a little bit. You know, last week I sort of on a lark picked against LSU because, I, <laughs> because I, you know, it, 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 it simply boils down to this. Sometimes you got to take a couple of upset picks. I thought Ole Miss could keep it close enough to cover the number was like 12 or 13. So at that point you're like, you know what, eh, might as well go full bore and pick the upset. Obviously that was way off. I could see Florida seems like a legitimate upset spot. For LSU, I mean, Florida is playing really good defense, uh, again, with a lot of really good defensive players. It still seems like that offense is not quite ready for prime time. But this certainly looks like the potential for a real sort of ugly SEC 17-14 kind of game. Yeah, I mean, listen, so LSU's offense is clunky. Structurally, it's it's very similar to what we've seen. Uh, their quarterback play has been much better, and, and Joe Burrow's poise has been a, a big deal for them. But they're not dynamic offensively. So they're they're leaning on their defense and getting enough play from their offense, and it's a similar to what we've seen from LSU in the past. It's just that we're all surprised that they're this good because we thought that program was going to fall apart, right? right. Um, <laughs> But Florida's been kind of a pleasant surprise, even if they're kind of doing it the same way. I don't know that we think that that's the way it's going to be forever with Dan Mullen, but he's sort of making do with what he has offensively. And while it's pretty clear that Mississippi State was tremendously overrated by most of us, me. Me? uh, Me? Here? Yeah, well, I wasn't (laughs) going to throw you in there because I wasn't completely sure. But basically college football, offseason, conventional wisdom at large, right? That was still an impressive win by Florida uh, on the road with the, with the cowbells making your ears bleed and all that kind of thing. Here's one reason why, yeah, it's easy to pick the, uh, it's easy to pick sort of the Florida to win the game thing. But Florida's offense is not the kind of offense that's going to run off and leave you, which I think is what would really cause problems for LSU. You know, and there aren't a lot of those, frankly, on their schedule. But if they can be in that ugly game like what you're talking about, then it may well be that this team's got some of those intangible things that just causes them to win. But, you know, it's just it's not like Florida's offense is such that you go, wow, I don't think LSU is going to be able to keep up with them because that's that's going to be their where they get, you know, their downfall is the offense just isn't that much better than it's been, even as much as I like Joe Burrow as their quarterback. Right, and that comes November, <laughs> November 3rd? Yes, November 3rd when they play Alabama. Alabama. It, when Alabama. it may well come with Georgia, too. That's a good I'm, point. You know, I'm just reserving a little bit of Georgia. Of, of, I'm reserving a little judgment on Georgia at this point. Um, not that I have any problem with where they're ranked or anything else. I just, I'm not ready to put them in the sort of the Alabama stratosphere yet. 
Yeah, but that's a stratosphere, and we won't get too deeply into that. That I mean, it's 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 getting a little ridiculous at Alabama to the point where, <laughs> you know, listen, they they played a very you know pliable schedule at this point. Right, so. they play nobody, but they've done exactly what nobody. I mean, what you expect from them to do yeah. and more. It, I mean, it, it's it, a different. It, it's a different looking Alabama team than we've seen in this run. So let's hit Notre Dame, Virginia Tech fairly quickly, and then we'll get into Red River. This is a tricky spot for Notre Dame. I just don't think that much of Virginia Tech, quite frankly. I mean, I know they bounced back nicely last week, and I think Virginia Tech will ultimately be another very solid Virginia Tech team, and that the ODU thing was sort of from Mars. But I think Notre Dame has the ability here with a more versatile offense to go on the road and get the job done, because I think that defense is pretty good. Yeah, listen, I think the defense is pretty good. It's not dominant, but very few are. I mean, anywhere, frankly, mm-hmm. these days. But it's very solid. And I was impressed with the defense. Um, but the offense is the difference. And the, the change that Brian Kelly made, even though he wouldn't even acknowledge it to me after the game, which was kind of funny. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. But that the change, I mean, I mean, the depth chart said Brandon Wimbush in all caps, and then in sort of the regular lowercase or Ian Book, which was funny going into the game. But when I asked him about it after the game, he still basically wouldn't declare the starter. It's just I, I don't even get it. But it's just kind of but whatever. Ian Book has changed their offense. And, you know, in a lesser to a lesser degree. And I'm not sure I'm ready to go with this is a lasting thing. But Dexter Williams, the tailback, came back. He'd been on a kind of an uh, unannounced suspension for undisclosed violation Mm -hmm. of uh, who knows what team rules. Came back and, you know, his first snap of the season, he goes 45 yards for a touchdown. And then he finishes with 161. And he's sort of a game breaker at the tailback that they've kind of been missing, too. I'm not ready to say, okay, that's who he's going to be all the time. But I am ready to say Ian Book gives them a different dimension on, on offense. They're a much more explosive offense because the pass game has been ejected into it. And, you know, in some ways it's a little bit like what we've seen some of these, you know, at Alabama or Ohio State where you've, you've suddenly got a guy who's a, a difference maker in the pass game and it's changed your offense and, and um, you know, greatly magnified your capabilities. And so I'm, I'm – I'm high on Notre Dame in terms of ability to uh, get through the season and and win a bunch of games and cause a lot of consternation and angst among people who want their team or their conference to get into the playoff. I'm not ready to say Notre Dame's going to get there, but I am ready to say they suddenly look like a team that could cause a lot of issues. So the Red River shootout between (laughs) Texas and Oklahoma, both teams are ranked for the first time since 2012. So for the first time in a long time, this is a big game. The winner of this game is going to be undefeated in the Big 12 with a few games under your belt and thinking big things, especially the way the rest of the Big 12 has sorted out. Now, I I still think the Big 12 looks like a a conference with potholes in that I could see a Texas Tech upsetting somebody. I could see an Oklahoma State upsetting somebody. I could see even a Baylor coming around the bend here. And like there's a lot of the middle class teams in the Big 12 that I think could be heard from. And West Virginia, I think, is legitimately good. But that said, the winner of this game is going to look like the favorite in the Big 12, whether or not, depending on how much you believe in West Virginia, which is kind of remarkable considering just a few weeks ago, 
Texas lost to Maryland. Is this the game where Texas will be back? Like, what's because <laughs> I think you know the funny thing is though, if they do win this game, at that point, I feel like you've at least established like maybe hey, listen, Texas is back or not. But I think you've established Texas as good. Yeah, no question. If they win that game, you think it, that's exactly what you think. Now, I will say this: they won three years ago, and they weren't good. They ended up being a bad loss on Oklahoma's schedule, which Oklahoma overcame to get into the playoff, if you recall that, 2015. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't I was, necessarily that mean that they're one. Yeah. back, which, you know, has become, you know, the, the internet thing or the, the social media thing is if they recover a fumble, Texas is back. Or if they fumble, then sarcastically, Texas is back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But listen, I think this is a better Texas team. It's pretty clear they've got something different. That Maryland loss grows more inexplicable week after week. But I, I do have a couple of cautions. One, nothing's changed with Oklahoma other than we've all been more impressed by how explosive they are offensively despite the loss of Baker Mayfield and how good Kyler Murray is and how many weapons he's got to give the ball to. Even after they lost their best running back, Rodney Anderson, to a season-ending in- injury. So nothing's changed there, although there's some cracks in sort of a supposedly improved defense that I think are – Definitely something that you have to be, they're worth monitoring. So it's not like they've lowered or come back to the pack any, as far as I can tell, in the Big 12. And in this four game win streak, the, the, the confidence with Texas is built on a four game win streak. And it should be because winning is something Texas hasn't done. Right. But one of those four games was impressive, and it was the, it, they dominated TCU. I guess you could say the USC game was impressive, but. I'm not quite sure what I think about USC. I think TCU's a halfway decent sort of, you know, late top 25 type team when it's all said and done. And, and I just thought the way Texas won that game was really um, impressive. But, you know, the way they beat Tulsa didn't do much for me. And frankly, although they exercised some demons in beating Kansas State anywhere, but certainly in Manhattan last week, they scored one offensive touchdown. And they were up 19 nothing at one point and sort of, Escape 1914, I think, was the final score. Mm-hmm. So it's important to win, and you build confidence, but there's not a whole lot there that says you're ready to go up against Oklahoma, other than those games are routinely really tight, great games, regardless of which program may be far ahead of the other one. Yeah. Even last year, it was a right, it absolutely. was a, it was a one score game that that Baker needed to make a couple needed to make some plays in to uh, to give Oklahoma well, a win. Sam Ellinger made plays down the stretch in the fourth quarter as a freshman who was not nearly as good as he is now, and he's a solid quarterback now who's not making the same kind of terrible mistakes to this point that he did last year when he was sort of thrown in the fire as a true freshman. But even last year, he made plays in the fourth quarter. He made he engineered the go ahead drive. And then Baker came back and won the game. So um, I'm, I'm impressed with Texas. I'm impressed with Ellinger's maturing. I think there's every chance they could win the game just because it's, you know, it's to do the cliche, you toss, you know, the records out the window and all that kind of stuff. I think that's true in this rivalry game. Yeah, it's so rare that one of those teams really rolls it up on the other one. We saw it in the 2000s a couple times with OU and once or twice with Texas, but it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, Charlie Strong won this game twice. 
So in neither time did it propel them to bigger and better things. So, yeah, it's just fun that it, it is truly meaningful on both sides that we're going into this with the idea that it's a big game in the Big 12 and not just a referendum game for the coach at Texas, which is all it's been over the last few years. And we've come away with incorrect or faulty answers, whether like things were going well at Texas or not. I guess they were false starts, right? A couple of times that we've yeah. seen. Even from Mac Brown, Mac Brown's last game against Oklahoma, I believe leave was a victory that seemed like it was going to salvage or put Mac on a different track and maybe they weren't going to force him out and nope that didn't happen either like so it's it's been a weird rivalry over the last few years it's nice that now it's just a big game do you know what I would like to see one thing change about the uh the Red River shootout one thing I don't want anything to change with the Cotton Bowl with the State Fair with the way they put the fans in the Crimson Horseshoe and the Burnt Orange Horseshoe Love the trophy, the golden hat. Everybody's seen those guys mm-hmm. galloping around the field. Baker Mayfield last year, right? Texas players. Charlie Strong wore it off the field one time. Can we make the? Can we go ahead and remake the golden hat to where it actually fits a modern head? <laughs> yeah. That's my only thing because it's it's like built for like a uh, a five foot three, you know, ninety seven pound guy, uh, and and it just doesn't fit anybody's head. And so they're you can't really wear it, even though they try. That that's be, be my one thing. I know no one's ever going to get rid of that trophy because it's a, you know the trophy itself is forever old. But it'd be cool if they could actually wear the hat. All right. Well, enjoy the. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're right because it How's looks. How's that for taking the podcast a different? Direction? No, no, I I agree with you a thousand percent. But it does make some very goofy photos, which are always fun because when Charlie would have that, you know, like Charlie Strong had that thing on his head, and it was like you're right, it's kind of teetering on the top. Um, <laughs> so it, it it makes some very interesting visuals. So I I would I would say that you're probably right. It would be nice if it actually fits somebody's head, but it also makes some funny photos. So you have to do this for me. And I know, you know, George is, is a pretty healthy guy, you know, exercise a lot, watches what he eats. But nonetheless, try to have something yummy and fried for me uh, at, at the fair this weekend before you you hit the game. Is it an 11, 11 o'clock kickoff start? It is an 11 o'clock kick. I know so they like to have after the game. It doesn't but... always it doesn't. They like to have it then. But there have been a couple of times in recent years when it hasn't. They would love for it to be a 230 kick or 330 kick, uh, you know, Eastern. That's what they, that's what their druthers would be. Um, just they never want it to be a night thing, just right. for safety right. and and spilling you know ninety thousand fans out onto the midway after the game. Uh, they never want it to be that. But I, I, my guess is they would rather have it be three thirty, uh, that kind of situation. But you know they'll they'll deal with it. They'll deal with the noon Eastern start and. Uh, it's great for me. Yes, right. Again, As a writer, I, I root for those kinds of games. Um, and again, you might be able to get home in time for, I don't know, maybe to catch Saturday Night Live or something like that. Well, <laughs> or, or, you know, college football final. That's destination viewing. So, George, uh, have a uh, fried Oreo for me, and hopefully we will run into each other on the trail real soon. George Schroeder from USA Today, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Now, three and out. First down. A final thought from me about play calling in the wake of Penn State's failed fourth and five. Not the call specifically, but criticizing play calling in general. I tend to avoid hammering coaches too hard on specific play calls because generally speaking, if it works, it's good. And if it doesn't, it's bad. 
But there's more to it than that. Football is such a complicated sport with so many permutations and moving parts. I'm hesitant to make definitive proclamations on the quality of a play because there is no way I have all the information that went into that decision. That doesn't mean I don't have opinions, and we could all have opinions at times. And it was pretty obvious to me that what Penn State did on Saturday night on its final play was not great. But I also think that most people watching the games, fans and media, know far less than we think we do about what goes into those decisions coaches make during games. Second down, the rapid rise of Pat Mahomes to NFL star along with Baker Mayfield quickly establishing himself as a solid NFL starter, got me thinking about all the tweets I get from college football fans who don't want to believe that any player is good unless they've played 12 games against Alabama. It is the strength of schedule conversation that has become so tedious when we talk about playoff contenders, but it gets transferred to players. Listen, I'm no scout. And trying to project who will hit or miss when it comes to the NFL is a really difficult task. Because not only are you evaluating talent and physical development, but also potential and personality. It's hard to know what players have peaked. It's even tougher to determine which players will embrace and are capable of handling an NFL workload and lifestyle. But if I had a dollar for every time some player was dismissed for playing against bad defenses as if you couldn't see the obvious freaky talents of someone like Mahomes by simply watching him and enjoying him play, I'd be a rich guy. I wasn't sure if Mahomes would be a great NFL quarterback, but there was no doubting his talent, and that type of determination can be made no matter the competition. Third down. Always looking for a little something off the radar, and this week that is Cincinnati, which has a home game against Tulane. The Bearcats could get to 6-0 and bowl eligibility in year two under Luke Fickle. It's been quite a turnaround for the former Ohio State assistant after going 4-8 last year. The Bearcats are still playing a lot of pretty young guys, especially on the second part of the depth chart. But Fickle has done a nice job of getting pretty good production out of the upperclassmen left behind by Tommy Tuberville, a group that has not had much success. That is coaching them up. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.